And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, June 30th, 2020. The eve of July, I have my friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you today, Pam? I'm great. I'm looking out the window and I see sunshine again. So you must see my good luck because there's sunshine many times. I must be. We We didn't have so much sunshine the last few days. We had a little bit of rain, which was probably overdue, but... It is nice to see sun. I I agree with you. And uh, so can you, speaking of sunshine, are there a lot of daffodils out in front of the hospital? There are a lot of daffodils. And I'll give you an update on where we're at. You know, it's interesting because you listen to the news and you hear about all the states that are having large rises in cases. And we have been pretty consistent. It's gone up a little, down a little uh, today. So last time we spoke last week, we had 13 positive patients. Today we have 12 positive patients. Last time we had four waiting results. Today we have four waiting results again. Um, And last time we had 64 deaths. Today we have 66 deaths. Um, In DuPage County, last time there was 8,736 positive cases, and now we're up to 8,993. The state was at 137,825 positive cases, and now they're up to 142,461. And the state deaths went from 6,707 up to 6,902. And for two positive things, number one, Our number of daffodils out front went from 392 to 399, and the state recovery rate, I've never said the statistics, but I thought it was an important one, the state recovery rate from COVID is 94%. So I thought that was a pretty nice statistic. And those are just uh, patients that are actually diagnosed, correct? Because if they're not diagnosed, nobody knows about them. Correct. So these are the ones that actually got testing, were were, uh, formally said they had were COVID positive, and 94% of the people in Illinois have recovered, which I think is a really nice statistic. It really is. How's the staff doing in terms of uh, staying safe? I think they're doing well. We did have one more employee this past week. It was an employee who um, does not work in an inpatient COVID unit, so uh, probably community-acquired. So only one more, which is as good statistics. And I, I think Illinois is very lucky that we are staying at a between 2 and 3% positivity rate. Um, I know we've had a lot of testing, at least in the Chicagoland area and the western suburbs, which allows us to, to understand how many people uh, are positive. I think um, we just need to be careful as things start to open up that we maintain all of the safety measures because just because things are okay right now, if you become lax in wearing your mask or following your distancing or washing your hands, um, we could easily see an upsurge and we don't want that. Is there anything new on the testing front in terms of either your capacity or new tests since we talked last week? No, no change, but we did start having employees go through the antibody testing. So um, we can do 1,200 antibody tests a day, and so uh, they're scheduling themselves. I'm going to actually have my test on Wednesday, so we'll see how that goes. I mean, I, I have not had any symptoms, but it is always good to know if I've had it and didn't know. And um, 
What's the turnaround on that test in terms of time? Uh, it just takes a little, you know, a few hours. So oh, okay. uh, you should get it back that very day. Great. So I haven't asked you about ventilators in a long time, and I'm curious if if you acquired more ventilators through the pandemic or if you still have the same number you had before the pandemic and, you know, how many of those are being used for COVID patients currently? So we have less right now than we had when we when we had the pandemic because we had acquired a, a lot more and um, we also had shared with our sister hospital who has a lot of ventilators. Um, right now, though, we're at 20 ventilators, which is all we need. We only have seven in use, and of the seven that are in use for are for COVID patients. So you use those for a lot of other things, obviously, not just COVID. We use, correct. There's a lot of patients that require ventilators, and we do some for a very short period of time. The thing with the COVID patients, once they went on a ventilator, it they were on for quite a few weeks, where normally if somebody goes on a ventilator, they may be on for a day or two. Um, it's rare that they're on for long periods of time. Are they typically used in surgeries too? They're used for surgery. In, during surgery, we do have um, a, an anesthesia machine that provides ventilation, which is different than the ventilators that we use on the units when the patient is um, an inpatient. Okay. I asked uh, a while ago about any new drugs, and, and it was quite a while ago, and you mentioned in particular remdesivir that was being used pretty successfully. Are there any other drugs currently being used in, uh, that are promising? Um, yes. Well, we're using the remdesivir still, and it's still uh, showing good results. We're using the convalescent plasma, which isn't a drug exactly, but it is uh, blood that has the antibodies in it, and that's been helping. And then we are using steroids. I know there's been a lot of information in the news recently about uh, um or steroid, and we have been using the steroids, and that has also shown promise. When do you start to administer a drug like remdesivir? What At what point? Uh, they're already on a ventilator, presumably, or before? Right before. Okay. We think they're going to need ventilation. Okay, and that tends to keep them from requiring it in certain cases? Or from not using it as long, okay. you know, so both. Is there any evidence of uh, the coronavirus spreading through uh, insects, mosquitoes? Well, I, I didn't know, so I asked our epidemiologist, and they said, currently there is no evidence to suggest that it would be spread by insects or mosquitoes. So not at this point. Well, that's good news. Yes, Especially, considering we all get mosquito bites every day. Right. Especially with the, the season we're in right now. Um, how about any guidance from the medical community as it relates to children uh, either in swimming pools or on playgrounds? Any, anything out there right now? Well, it is not so much a concern about being in the swimming pool as so much as it is a concern about what you're touching around the swimming pool or what you're touching on the playground. So, again, making sure that, um, you know, you wipe things down before your child goes on it, that you are... Um, making sure that they wash their hands if they and they're wearing face masks. If, if they're old enough, remember, babies should not wear face masks. But children, two, three, older, should be wearing face masks. They need to have some time to breathe, so you do want to be able to take the face mask off so if you're outside and you're six feet away and their hands are clean, 
they can take off the face mask, they can touch their face, but they can keep their hands clean. So we have a lot of uh, hand gel around as well. We uh, entered phase four of the governor's recovery plan last Friday. And to a lot of us, life feels a little different. We can get in restaurants again, uh, still keeping a lot of precautions like PPE. But does it feel any different within the walls of Elmhurst Hospital as it relates to going into phase four, or does it feel pretty much the same? Well, it nothing's ever going back to the way we were at one point in time, but it, it we're slowly being able to do more things, and phase four allows us now to start doing uh, our CPR courses again, um, you know, uh, some more group activities, but the group activities obviously are small groups with a lot of social distancing in there. And then we did, as I, I told you last week, we did open up to all patients now can have one visitor unless they are in a COVID unit. So having at least visitors back in the building is a, is a nice thing. We are encouraging, though, if someone's going to for an outpatient visit, that unless there's a reason they need someone with them, not to bring someone along because we don't want to have a lot of people in waiting areas um, so unless you need it for translation or because you uh, can't remember things or you, you need help ambulating we prefer you don't have somebody come into the building with you and that you go see the doctor alone like a parent should accompany their child but not both parents if possible unless there's a reason and we can always call from the office and talk to you over the phone as we're uh, explaining things to the patient so that you both hear without you having to be in the building. We've uh, heard a lot in the media about in the fall that there's a possibility of a second wave of the uh, of the COVID-19 um, pandemic and where it, the numbers start to spike up again. And I'm wondering if there are people in the medical community, especially here in Illinois as it relates to us, that fear that that may be come even sooner than that as a result of folks being back together again. Do you, you hear much of that? I hear a lot of fear. Um, I was talking to somebody whose son-in-law works at Parkland Hospital in Texas, and they have 180 positive COVID patients in their hospital, and they only have 60 ventilators. They don't know what to do with all the patients. And that kind of activity is what we heard in the beginning in New York and in Washington. And so I think there's a lot of risk that as things open up, if people become too um, confident in feeling like they can either with withstand this illness um, that it won't impact them and they or they just can't tolerate the distancing there is a big risk that we could have an upsurge and again I encourage everybody to remember uh, safety practices both outside and inside and then when fall comes unless we have vaccination, we know that we already have an issue in the fall and winter with flu. Um, we're going to need to make sure everybody gets their flu vaccines because to, to be able to differentiate between COVID symptoms and flu symptoms, we're going to have to be doing a lot of testing, um, you know, 
flu patients die as well, and flu patients uh, have respiratory issues as well, and so they're going to be competing for beds, competing for um, equipment, and, and um, we're all concerned about that. So we're hoping a vaccine gets available. We don't anticipate it will be, though, for this flu season, and so we are encouraging everybody that when the flu vaccine comes out, even if in the past you didn't want to take it, I would encourage you to take it because you know, there's going to be a lot of competing priorities for, for resources in the fall and winter. I've asked you quite a bit about the effects of the pandemic on mental health in particular, but even more specifically, what I haven't necessarily asked about is those folks that are suffering with opioid addictions and whether or not they've had particular trouble with the pandemic coping with their new lifestyle and their addiction. Have you seen much of that? You know, um, COVID is impacting everybody, mental health and, um, you know, and just people who never had any mental health issues. But in people who have substance abuse issues and particularly opioids, uh, this has made it even more dangerous for them. And you say, why? Why particularly for them? But um, the reality is in DuPage County, there were 22 deaths over the first three-week period um, of COVID from an opioid overdose. And in DuPage County, there were 924 deaths between January and May of 2020 versus 461 deaths in January through May of 2019. Um, for the first four months of 2020, we had 33% more non-fatal overdoses in Illinois. And, um, and so, we're very concerned about people who have addictions during this time. Two reasons. One, um, because people who would get treatment for opioids frequently got treatments in group settings, and they weren't able to go into group settings during COVID, and so it was um, more isolating and uh, less successful in terms of treatment. They could do things online for treatment, but that isn't as successful as when you are face-to-face -face with your peers helping you to deal with the, the illness. And the other thing is when people do overdose, frequently they're alone and there's no one there to help them and give them Narcan to save their lives, and so more people die. So we're very, very concerned about people who have an opioid issue, um, and, and if you do know somebody who has opioid or any kind of substance abuse issues, please keep reaching out to them and encouraging them to reach out for help and, and, um, and that they have at least some verbal support so that you know if they need help. Well, those are some sad statistics, but some, some good advice. So I thank you for that. One last thing I want to ask you about is I've seen on social media that uh, Edward Elmhurst Health has been recognized by the IBM Watson Health Group uh, with some awards and designations. Can you tell me a little bit about the accolades that the uh, health system have been had bestowed upon them and how significant that is? Yes, this is so exciting, and, I, and I'm so happy you asked me about it because we've known about this for a while, but they haven't let us release it until today. Actually, it's the first day it's released, so you're right on top of the news. Um, so last year, Elmhurst and Edward were named as a top 15 health system for Fortune-IBM Watson Health. And what they do is um, they look at publicly reported data to say what are the best quality, best safety scores, best mortality rates 
best patient experience rates across the country. This is not something you pay for. It's all publicly reported data. It's all even across um, all organizations. Because some others, like um, health grades, a lot of those have to have, um, if you're an academic facility, you get some scores that community hospitals can't get, so you can't even um, reach any numbers with those because you don't have access to the things. But with this IBM Watson, it's consistent across the country. And so this year, again, the system was named to the, one of the top 15 health systems in the country. We're one of five mid-sized health systems. And, um, and what does that mean? When you look at the rankings, if you actually look into all of these different hospitals, and there's 2,492 hospitals that um, are identified, in the top 15, Edward Elmhurst ranked the lowest in inpatient mortality, resulting in fewer hospital deaths, the lowest in 30-day mortality, resulting in fewer deaths overall, and the highest for influenza immunization protocols for the five medium-sized hospitals, as well as um, high inpatient satisfaction compared to other hospitals. And not only did we get that award, this year both Edward and Elmhurst hospitals were named top 100 hospitals in the country individually on our own, as well as we got a new award that um, is called the, I think it's the Everest Row Award, and that is that greatest amount of improvement over a five-year running term. So we're very lucky. We're, we're being recognized for a lot of great things, and I think that's why um, as a hospital and as a system, this whole COVID was scary, but we got our hands around it. We were able to get control of it, and we were able to help people improve and get better and help keep people safe in the community. But we're very excited about these awards. It goes along with Elmhurst being straight A's and leapfrog. We're uh, being five stars for CMS ratings. So um, you've got a really great gem of a hospital here in your in your city. Well, congratulations to you, your administration, your board, and your staff, because uh, it takes a, a team, as you know, and uh, there's a, a lot of folks on your staff that obviously did a lot of hard work to uh, achieve that. Um, and, and as it relates to your staff, one, one last question, how are they doing and uh, are they getting used to the, the new normal within the walls of the hospital? You know, I think they're getting used to the new normal. Do they like it and do they want it to continue? I don't think so. Um, but they are troopers. They know this is the way it is. They know this is important and um, they support each other. They do like using our healing teams to help support them as they go through their own personal experiences, as well as they like the fact that we are very um, transparent to them in terms of everything going on in the system, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. They know it. They're, they know we're doing our best to keep everybody safe and healthy. And, um, and so I think they're really appreciative of that. So we have a great group of people, a great group of doctors, and a really wonderful community. Well, as I've said before, uh, you know, society in general is very grateful for what our healthcare workers do. And I know I have some friends that are healthcare workers and, uh, Many of them are embarrassed by all the accolades that are being thrown at them, but they have no need to be embarrassed. They're they're doing an outstanding job, and uh, we're proud of them. Uh, we're proud of you, and I thank you for spending time with us again today, and I look forward to talking again soon. 
Thank you so much, and I have a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Thank you, Pam. This is Erin Jason, Business Development Coordinator for the City of Elmhurst. Now more than ever, we're asking the community of Elmhurst to please fill out your U.S. 2020 Census. It's quick, safe, and easy, and you can do it online at my2020census.gov. Thank you. And now, it's time for another installment of One Ponce a Time with lowdown legend PK and his overly enthused yesteryear expert friend, Elmhurst History Museum director, Dave Oberg. Hey, boys and girls. One Ponce a Time, did you know that during the Great Depression, Elmhurst was home to a special camp created by the federal government to provide meaningful work for single men under the age of 25? Between 1934 and 1935, men from Chicago and all over the Midwest came to build barracks, plant trees, conduct conservation work and landscaping, and construct bridges in Elmhurst. Camp Elmhurst opened in August of 1934 and operated for just over a year. It closed suddenly in August of 1935 and was quickly disassembled. The camp is gone now. Its story lives on. So let's dig a little deeper. Uh, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt created the Civilian Conservation Corps in April of 1933, uh, the United States was in the depths of the Great Depression. And the program was specifically designed to provide meaningful work for young men who had faced years of staggering unemployment. As a matter of fact, there was even a worry that you know, some people in their, their teens and early 20s had never held a meaningful job in their life. And so those who participated in the camps enlisted for six-month terms and earned $30 per month. They're expected to send home $22 to $25 a month to help their families. Um, by way of comparison, that would translate to a monthly salary of about $600 a month with $440 to $500 per month sent home. And that might not sound like a king's ransom, but with work scarce and room and board already provided by the camp, uh, these camps were offered meaningful experience and a vital lifeline to young men out of work. To hold down expenses and provide housing, one of the first tasks these camps uh, did was construct barracks and support structures for all the enlistees. And the CCC members learned valuable skills while building the structures that would serve them later in life. Uncle Sam took care of transportation. The United States Army actually provided the logistical support needed to transport a vast corps of enlistees from site to site. The primary focus of the camps was to work on conservation and beautification projects in the areas where they were sited. Between April 5th and July 1st of 1933 alone, 300,000 men were deployed to serve in more than 1,400 camps. That was the largest peacetime mobilization in United States history. Now, Elmhurst joined the growing roster of communities that hosted Civilian Conservation Corps camps the following year. CCC Company 2602, under the command of Captain Leland S. Power, arrived at Camp Elmhurst on August 10, 1934. The company of 200 men built military-style barracks, administrative offices, a recreation building, and a mess hall on Villa Avenue, just south of North Avenue. Their primary project was to improve the new Route 54 Parkway, planting trees, building bridges, and taking part in general landscaping to improve the appearance of the busy road. Members of Camp Elmhurst hosted an open house for local residents in April of 1935 and hosted several community dances. They also marched in local parades, so their presence was seen and felt by our community. When the camp closed in 1935, enlistees were reassigned to camps in Melrose Park and Peoria. A nearby camp in Foldersburg Woods also left its mark, conducting conservation work on the old Growie Mill, which serves as a museum in Oak Brook today. 
At a national level, the Civilian Conservation Corps continued to operate until 1942, when it was closed to channel manpower into the growing war effort. By that time, Roosevelt's tree army, as it was sometimes called, had planted roughly 3.5 billion trees and helped to establish more than 700 state parks, a living legacy we all still enjoy today. When you drive along Illinois 83, which follows the footprint of the old Route 54, take a moment to remember the work of the young men who briefly called Camp Elmer's home. Wow, Dave. I hope uh, we don't have to resort to this to get, help us get through the pandemic, but uh, it certainly gives a new meaning to the, uh, to the phrase summer camp. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.